I was talking recently to the president of Dallas Seminary. He and I used to lead a Bible study together, and so we've gotten to know each other a little bit. And we were talking about the angst on the seminary campus, how, how all that's going on in our country and all the division and, and all that is happening on the news and in our cities has impacted the student body. He said it, it's interesting to see how much fear there is on the campus because of what we see. And then he and I had a, a brief chuckle because we're both much older than the seminary students. And, and one of the things that you, one of the few advantages to getting older is you remember the difficult times you've made it through. See, he and I remember the 60s, which my generation made a total mess of things. We had rioting at, at the Democratic Convention. We had burning of Watts. We had division in a way that, that if anything, was worse than what we see today. And he said, you, you, you want to remind the young adults that God can get us through these times. You just, as, as bad as they are, it's always good to be reminded that God can get us through these times. That, that confidence in His faithfulness, even when things are incredibly difficult, is, is one of the hallmarks of those who trust in Him. It's easy to trust God when everything's going swimmingly. It's something else to have confidence in Him when things are difficult. We're going to look at the life of someone in the Bible who always is depicted as almost perfect. In fact, at times I struggle with not even liking him because he's so stinking perfect. Joseph, the amazing Technicolor dream coat, Joseph, the, the guy who almost nothing negatively is said about him in all of Scripture. He and Daniel are those two guys in the Old Testament that just come through with flying colors. And, and so consequently, we tend to uh, caricature him and see him in horribly simple terms that I don't think fair are, are fair to him as a person. Uh, Joseph is, is in the last of the patriarchal history in the Old Testament. The book of Genesis, you know, in the first 11 chapters, the description of the creation and establishment of all the earth, and then in chapters 12 and following begins the description of God's selection of the nation of Israel uh, through whom he will do his work for centuries to come. He chooses Abram out of the Ur of the Chaldees and says that I am going to make a great nation out of you. You're going to have a whole lot of kids. And Abram says, but Lord, I'm 100 years old. It doesn't look good right now. In fact, if you will, turn, if you want to, to Genesis chapter 15 where the story of Abram really is articulated well. And Genesis chapter 15 is the second mention of God's promise or His covenant, His contract with Abram. Uh, verse 1, after this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, a dream. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. And Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. And the word of the Lord came to him, this man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. And he took him outside and said, look up in the sky and count the stars. If indeed you can count them, he said, so shall your offspring be. By the way, when the, Abram reports this to Sarah in another chapter, she laughs because of the absurdity of it. 
And Abram believed the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. One of the most significant verses in all of the Old Testament, in fact, of all of Scripture, whereby the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans will point out that salvation has always been through faith and faith alone. You never gain God's approval by living up to His standards because we aren't capable of it. It is always a reflection of trust in Him. In verse 7, he also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. And Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer and a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. And Abram brought all these to him. He cut them in two and arranged the halves opposite to each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. And the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. In the ancient Near East, they would literally cut a covenant. They would uh, sacrifice animals, arrange the carcasses, split in two, but, and then they would walk through that symbolizing what should come to them if they broke that covenant. It was a solemn oath that demonstrated the consequences of disobedience honesty and unfaithfulness. So, verse 12, as the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. And the Lord said to him, know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. And Abram thought, and this is the good news. This is the good news. You promised me I'll have children, and now you're telling me they'll be enslaved for 400 years years. But I will punish the nation that they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. And in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the, from the, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Interesting a quick note that, in other words, God says you have to be there because the Amorites, the Canaanites, those who are in the promised land, will have not reached the point in their sinfulness that I'm ready to judge them. I give them this long to hopefully turn around, but after 400 years, I will be done. I will use you and your conquest to exercise judgment on the Canaanites, which is an explanation of why the conquest was so incredibly brutal. But that's another sermon. Verse 17, and when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. The covenant has been cut because God Himself in the form of this fire pot has walked between the carcasses. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, to your descendants, I will give this land from the wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Raphites, Amorites, Canaanites, Gergesites, and Jebusites. God came to Abram in his ripe old age and said, I'm going to make you a great nation. In fact, it's going to be like the stars in the sky. Abram says, but Lord, let me give you a biography lesson. I'm old. And the Lord said, I am faithful, you can trust me, and then throws this amazing prophecy that the land, the people of Israel will spend 400 years in servitude. Then uh, Abram has Isaac, his son. God takes him and, and leads him to the mountain to offer Isaac as a sacrifice, but then God provides for a sacrifice in his place, in which uh, Abram demonstrates his trust in God. Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. 
and Jacob has 12 sons, the next to last of whom is Joseph. And Joseph is the guy who we're going to talk about for the next few weeks. Um, like I said, Joseph, Joseph is a difficult character because he just seems so stinking perfect. But, but when, when we read Joseph, we oftentimes only focus on all the good stuff. We say, well, God made these promises and it all came true, so that's the life of Joseph. It's as if life was never hard for Joseph. And in seeing it that way, we absolve ourselves from having to have faith when things are hard. As we look through the life of Joseph, I want you to see what it was for Joseph at the point at which we're reading. In other words, as we look at chapter 37, how did Joseph feel during chapter 37? Not at the end of the story, but in the middle of it. And I think many of us will be able to identify with what he experiences. So if you have your Bibles and want to turn to Genesis chapter 37, I want you to look at the story of Joseph. First of all, I ask the basic question, is he naive or arrogant? Is he naive or arrogant? A big question that preachers have about Joseph because of his actions in the first of chapter 37. Verse 1, Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed in the land of Canaan. And this is an account of Jacob. Joseph, uh, the, uh, by the way, when you read the book of Genesis, there are these introductions of the new sections, the generations of, the account of. The Hebrew word is toledot. It is, it is a beginning of a new section, and this is the new section as it relates to Joseph. By the way, in fact, this last section of uh, the book of Genesis fo so focuses on Joseph that it's been called a novella, a short story. It is, it is almost set apart from the rest of Genesis because it is so significant space given to this one man. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilka and the sons of Zilpah, and his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had born to him in his old age, continuing theme, and he had made a richly ornamented, ornamented robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and would not speak a kind word to him. So Joseph is out with his brothers, but he is the favored son. This is a theme of the life of Isaac. Uh, in, I think it's chapter 25, it says that, that or excuse me, the life of Jacob. It says that uh, Jacob was his mother's favorite and Isaac was his daddy's favorite. Favoritism was one of the failings of these early families because they had multiple wives. One of the issues of the Old Testament is why God allowed polygamy, and we can only say he did. It was never his intent. But this favoritism was something that would bring pain on all of the royal old families of the Old Testament. And Jacob should have known better than to be, show favoritism because of what it did in his own life. His brother tried to kill him himself, but he falls into it and, and demonstrates that Joseph is his favorite, first of all, because he was old when Joseph was born, but more significantly, he is the firstborn of Rachel. And Rachel is the one, the beautiful one he had always wanted to marry. That's why the passage makes the point that he was out with the brothers of those other women because those other women didn't count near as much to dad. And you, you see the, the story being set up for a real tension because when the brothers see him 
and they see him in his special clothing. It says they hated him and couldn't even speak a kind word to him. Uh, if you're like me, you always heard it was a coat of many colors, uh, country and western songs, Broadway musicals, books by English authors like Fielding, all, all focus on the life of Joseph. Um, uh, now scholars believe it wasn't necessarily a colorful robe as much as a long robe that went all the way to his hands. But the point of it probably was signify not only that he was the favored one, but that he would be treated as the firstborn because he was the firstborn of the legitimate wife, Rachel, he would gain the results of being a firstborn, which included a double portion of the inheritance as well as a significant role in the estate. He would be the one who gained the most benefit in the family, and his brothers hate him. Did you catch his age, by the way? Seventeen. Now, half of you don't know what it is to be a 17-year-old boy. The other half of us vaguely remember. We vaguely remember because you live in a cloud when you're 17. It's a, it's a wonderful thing. It, it's, we proudly wear the designation of being knuckleheads when we're 17-year-old boys. In fact, it's something that we do really well. Um, the genus Knuckleheadus knuckle is, a, is, a, is a male who is 17. And, and here you have... I thought it was funny. Here you have, uh, I'm just going to entertain myself. You can go along for the ride. If you don't like it, that's fine. Here you have this, this boy, Joseph, who is already treated as if he is the spectacular one of the family, the favored one. And he will show his last lack of discernment as we go forward in the story. Verse 5, Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to the dream I had. We were building sheaves, binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around me and bowed down to it. Don't believe I'd have told that. Um, in other words, he says, I had a dream that all of you served me. And it doesn't even say that it was a vision from God. It just says, I had a dream, which even in those times, there would probably be an assumption, yeah, that was your dream, okay. And it says that the brothers hated him even more because of that. Do, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? Verse 9, then he had another dream. And he told it to his brothers. Listen, I had another dream, and this time the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bound down to me. Okay, I always kind of wanted to give Joseph the benefit of the doubt and believe that he was just innocent, but this is when he shows his colors aren't just in his coat because he told them again. You know, after the first one went so badly, he, he, you would have thought discretion being the better part of valor to say, I'm not going to but you get the impression he marched in with his fancy coat and said, yo, again, you're in trouble. Verse 10, when he told his father as well as brothers, his father rebuked him. What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? So his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Uh, I would call this um, the feigned innocence of youth. In other words, he, you know, you remember doing this when you got caught and you'd say, 
What? I didn't do anything. Right? I think that's Joseph here. He, he knows what he's doing, but he, he still can look innocent. What? Me? I just told him my dream. Verse 12. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, as you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, go and see if all is well with your brothers. Check on them. You, you brought a bad report last time. Let's see how they're doing this time. And bring word back to me. And then he sent him off to the valley of Hebron, which is three days' journey from where they were. And when Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, what are you looking for? And he replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they were when they were grazing the flocks? One commentator made the point that I am looking for my brothers is a significant description of much as Joseph's life. He will be burdened his whole life by the heartache he has with his brothers. He will he will live his whole life trying to gain their approval. And, and so, when we look at the life of Joseph and we gloss over it as if everything went well and everything was easy, we, we neglect to see this is a man whose heart was broken at a very, yeah, he was daddy's favorite, but then all of his brothers hated him, hated him. And, and that, that heartache will shape him in many ways throughout the rest of the story. Verse 17, they had moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan, but they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Now, that's not good for any family, right? This isn't just tension. This is hatred. Verse 19, here comes the dreamer. You hear the sarcasm? The one who dreams of subjecting all of us to his slavery. The one who dreams of treating us like property. So they said to each other, so come now, let's kill him now and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. And then, then we'll see what comes of his dreams. We'll prove that his dreams aren't true by taking this into our own hands. In, in, in Israel, there are limestone caverns or cisterns that are used to manage the water supply. There were only two or three months of rain, and they were required to build these systems of keeping the water so that they could make it through the rest of the year. This would have been during a dry time when the cistern had been drained. They were deep and and at this point, this one is dry, and they threw Joseph into it. Um, when Reuben heard this, the oldest brother, verse 21, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life. That's just bad form. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into the cistern here in the desert, but don't lay a hand on him. And Reuben said this to rescue him from him and take them back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of the robe. Why is that important? Because they stripped him of his special status. 
They hated the fact that even though he is one of the youngest child, he has the rights of the eldest. They demonstrate their disrespect for their father and for Joseph, and they strip him of how that is demonstrated. The richly ornamented robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern, and the cistern was empty. There was no water in it. And in verses 25 through 36, he's bought and sold. As they sat down to eat their meal, oh, isn't that special? You throw your brother into a hole and then, hey, are you hungry? This is cold. This is cold-hearted. In fact, some have suggested what they're eating is the stuff that, that was Joseph brought to them. He brought to them a goodie bag of things from daddy. They throw him into a hole after deciding not to murder him and then say, hey, let's see what Joseph brought, right? You see the callousness, the, the depth of the hatred. And they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead, and the camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. And Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites. I've got an idea. At least we can make money off of him that way, right? And after all, he is our brother. <laughs> the warmth just gets you, doesn't it? Doesn't it? <laughs> Any of you have families like this? <laughs> Don't tell me. He is our brother, our own flesh and blood, so his brothers agreed. Notice there's no concern at all for what's right here. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph out, out of the cistern, and they sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites and took him to Egypt. Um, archaeologists say that uh, a, a shepherd uh, could wear, earn in a year eight shekels. Uh, so this amount of 20 shekels is not an insignificant amount for that time. Um, by the way, one of the things that you will see as we study the life of Joseph is uh, all the many similarities between his life and the life of Christ. Interestingly, nowhere in the New Testament is Joseph called a type, a formal picture of Jesus. But yet, there are so many similarities, there are so many things that point to the life of Christ that, that as Tim Keller, the pastor from New York, would say, Jesus is a new and better Joseph in the New Testament because he will ultimately uh, effectively give himself for the sins of others and free them from slavery. It is a significant theme as you walk through the life of the story. Um, and Jesus would be sold for uh, coins as well, and here Joseph is sold for 20 shekels, another analogy in their stories. Verse 29, when Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes, and he went back to his brothers and said, the boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? And they got Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood, and they took the ornamented robe back to their father and said, we found this. Look and see if it's your son's robe, if it's your son's robe. And Jacob took the clothes and put on sackcloth and mourned his son because he said, it is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Surely he's been torn to pieces. And all of Jacob's sons and daughters came and comforted him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, in mourning I will go down to the grave to my son. 
So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites told jo sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. There is an irony here that we would not necessarily catch. It was through the uh, fur of a goat's skin that uh, Jacob would deceive his father into believing he was Esau. They, if you remember, they put the fur on his arm so that when Isaac felt him, he thought it was Esau's hairy arms. And here, blood and goats and skin, the very same things are used to deceive him by his sons, because one of the themes of Scripture is that the consequences of our disobedience often wear out in our lives. So, Joseph is the favored one. He's the one everybody loves. He's, he's the one who is clearly chosen from the beginning to be the star of the show. And, and yet, in his cockiness, he, he manages to gain deep resentment for his brothers. And in, in their evil, they choose to kill him. And, and yet, God has a plan. You know, it's interesting. We, we think of Joseph, and we think of, if, if, you've, if you've grown up in the Bible, if you know the story. I told this, uh, taught the book Life of Joseph to a bunch of football coaches once, and there was one of the guys in there I'll never forget. He, he had never heard the story of Joseph. And one, one week he looked at me and said, I can't wait to hear what happens next week. I didn't tell him he could read it. I just thought he ought to wait and hear me tell him. Um, but it, it, those of us who, those of us, yes, he could read. He was a coach, but he was a bright guy, okay? Um, now, one... One of the things we do, as I mentioned, is, is we think of the, the victories of his life and we ignore the hardship. I mean, yeah, Daddy had told him he would be the one who would be the recipient of these unbelievable blessings. He, he had been promised that he would have this great life, but did you happen to notice what happened to him along the way? His brothers debate whether to kill him and instead throw him into a deep hole and sell him off to slavery. And have you ever wondered what his state of mind was at this point? Wouldn't it be natural for him to ask God, yo, Lord, where are you? Promises? Dreams? I'm through dad and you and everything else, and this is it? This is what it got me? This, this is how you reward your people? See, we, we all too often look at the lives of the faithful people and only see the victory and ignore the realities of the hard times they went through when they had to stay faithful because they trusted God's faithfulness. And the reality is we miss the greatest blessing because of that, because it is in their, it is in their, it is in their strength of faith, their courage when things are bad, their, their one step in front of the next because of their faith that they really teach us something. You know, he had these dreams, and yet God crushed his dreams. And few things hurt near as badly as crushed dreams. And yet that's all part of God's plan, because God, in crushing his dreams, is preparing him to leadership roles where he will be strong and ultimately lead the greatest empire in the world of his day.
See, strength doesn't come from pandering. Strength comes from the hardship. And faith isn't grown when God always gives us everything the way we want it. Faith is strengthened when God asks us to trust him when we're in the bottom of the hope. Right? And so Joseph is this amazing story that demonstrates what it is to trust God and to be given something you believe is from him and trust him that he's going to do it and yet then experience a lot of bad news in which you wonder, well, Lord, can I trust you? Job says it better than anyone, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Because, because the reality is it's in that difficulty that we, we learn what it is to hold on in our faith. And those who have done it before you will tell you that's when you experience just how faithful he is. Some of you are in very difficult times. I know some of the stories. I never know all of them. You're in times where your dreams are getting crushed, your hopes, your expectations are slipping out of your hands, and you're wondering where God is in it all. Some of you or look at our nation and wonder how God can work in what we see in our political realm and our economic realm. There's so many ways that you can find to get discouraged in the way we live right now. And it's tempting to say, God, where are you? And hear the echo of our voice against the walls of the hole we're in. And Joseph would say, you keep trusting you keep trusting because he will pull you out of the hole. And then he'll sell you into slavery, which will not help for a little bit, right? In fact, if you look at the life of Joseph, he goes through an incredibly lengthy period, as does many individuals, as do many individuals in the Old Testament. You know, Moses has 40 years in the wilderness, before he experiences 40 years of being used by God. The reality is that following Christ demands faith. It demands faith. And, and Joseph is a demonstration that when we can be faithful because God always is. And, and we can look back in the past and see what he's blessed in the past, and that gives us hope and confidence in the future that he will bless in the future. And that there's no problem so great that he's not big enough to be there with us. And, and no hurt so deep that he can't walk through us with us. And that no energy exerted for faith is ever wasted. Because he's always faithful. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness, even in the difficult times. And Lord, we ask that you would give us the confidence of Joseph that even when we're in the hole, 
you are yet there. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.